Hey. Hello, everybody. Good to see you guys here tonight. Happy Thursday. Yeah, Thursday, great day. So my name is uh, Stephen Crawford. Uh, I, this is my first year here on staff with Challenge. I used to work uh, for another organization called The Navigators last year, and uh, now I'm here with Challenge. Really excited to be here. This is my first time speaking. Can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Uh, a little bit about me. I got a picture for you guys. Uh, that's me right there. Young Stephen Crawford. The height of fashion uh, was the, the bandana headband. This, this picture was taken, I believe, in October of 2003. Yeah, I, I was trying to find a great picture of myself in college. So a junior in college uh, back in the fall of 2003. Uh, I think that you guys probably took more pictures today than exist of my entire college career. Because I, I could not, this is the only one uh, that I could find. Um, so uh, there was no Facebook back then. Actually, October 2003 was the year that Mark Zuckerberg was sitting in his dorm room creating Facebook. So uh, I was going to a school called New England Conservatory in Boston. Um, and that's a picture of me and my, my three best friends from college. Uh, and the guy all the way on the left, uh, is that right? Yeah, left. His name is uh, Peter. Now, when I was a sophomore in college, I, I, I was not walking with Christ during my, my first year of college um, or through high school. Uh, but I had kind of gone, grown a little bit disillusioned um, with uh, the lifestyle that I was leading. And the first day back as a sophomore, uh, I was walking down my hall. And this guy, Peter, uh, walked down the hallway. Uh, I'd never met him before. He stuck out his hand. He said, hi, my name's Peter. Do you want to read the Bible with me? And I said, you know, I kind of opened my mouth to say no. Uh, but for some reason, I said yes. I think it was because I'd, I'd been feeling like this need uh, for, for something else in my life. I've been feeling empty. Um, so I said yes. Uh, and then he said, OK, great. Uh, come back uh, tomorrow night, 7 PM, my dorm room. So uh, you know, it was a small college I was going to. There's only about 800 people there. But I showed up at uh, the Bible study the next night, 7.30. I walked into the room. And it was a pretty small Bible study. It was just me and Peter. And that's it. <laughs> so what I found out later is that uh, he had transferred from another school where he'd been involved with a ministry. And when he had transferred into my, my tiny little school, he'd been afraid that he uh, wouldn't be able to have any sort of impact for the kingdom. He didn't know if there was any sort of Christian organization or anything like that. Uh, and so his ministry leader and him prayed together. And they, they prayed that during his time at his new school that he'd be able to have an impact for the kingdom on one person. So they prayed that together. And after they prayed, after they said amen, uh, the, uh, Peter's ministry leader said to him, this is what I want you to do. The first day you move into your dorms, as soon as you set yourself down in your room, I want you to get up, walk out, and the first person you see, invite them to read the Bible with you. So that's what Peter did. <laughs> Moved his stuff in, sat in his bed, got up, walked out, and there I was. <laughs> so he asked me, and I said yes, and he said, my job here is finished. <laughs> so uh, eventually that Bible study grew a little bit more. We added a couple more guys to it. Uh, those two guys ended up joining. Uh, and those three um, guys had a, a profound impact on my life. They basically changed the whole course and trajectory of my life. 
Uh, I don't think, I definitely wouldn't be here talking to you guys if it weren't for the courage of this just ordinary uh, sophomore college student who got out of his bed, terrified, walked down his hall, stuck out his hand, and introduced himself to me. That completely changed the trajectory of my life. So I love the college years. I think they're key and important times. And I don't want you guys to underestimate the profound impact that you can have just by walking up to somebody that you see, somebody that you know, and inviting them to read the Bible with you or talk more about um, your, your faith. Anyway, so that's a little bit about my background. Uh, you know, fast forward like 10 years, and I got married. <laughs> more than 10 years, actually. Uh, this is my wife, Tanya. I got married about two years, a little over two years ago, so she's here uh, supporting me tonight. Really grateful for her. Uh, she's the love of my life. So that's a little bit about me. <laughs> that's all, all you really need to know. Um, yeah, so as you guys know, we're going through a series this semester called Written for Our Instruction, uh, a series that looks at the lives of um, people in the Old Testament, men and women uh, just like us, um, that are encountering the same sort of situations that we are, the same fears, the same struggles, the same temptations. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul writes, uh, Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So these men and women in the Old Testament that are encountering challenges, that are going through things, those things were recorded and written down so that we... 2,000, 3,000, even 4,000 years later might learn from their example how to process our faith, how to walk with God. <clears throat> so every, uh, every week this semester, we're taking a look at a different person from the Old Testament. What were their struggles? How did they um, go through them? And what can we learn from their example? <clears throat> so as I was thinking about who do I want to talk about, I thought, who is the most obscure person I can think of so that I can impress everybody. It was my first talk. I'd impress you guys. Like deep cuts from the Bible. So I picked Jehoiada and Jehosheba. I don't even know who they are. No, I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's not what I did. Uh, I actually, I, as soon as Neil um, pitched this, uh, this like, series to me, I was like, I know who I want to talk about. I want to talk about Jehoiada and Jehosheba. I'm dead serious. It's not because they're super obscure. It's because I love their story. I think it's incredibly powerful. And I think it has potential to really change the way that you think about your faith. All right? I'm serious. And then, you know, later you can go to all your friends and be like, hey, have you ever heard of Jehoiada and Jehosheba? So you can, you can do that. Uh, now, because these guys are a, a little bit obscure, uh, you know, not, not the most famous of Bible characters, I think it, it's very important that we take a look at the broader context of the story that we are going to read tonight. Now, context is very important. Uh, and I have a, a, a short clip from one of my favorite TV shows to illustrate the importance of context. Okay? Now, to give you a little context for this clip, in this, in this uh, part of this show, a guy... Uh, has done a, a magician, has done a magic trick, and the person that he did the magic trick on like disappeared and, and nobody knows where he is. And the media has come to him angry to try and figure out if he knows what happened to uh, this man named Earl Milford. 
Okay, so roll tape. Here's the clip. Where's Earl Milford? I, I don't know, all right? I, I put him in a box. I didn't kill him, all right? Don't edit this for your broadcast, so it looks like I'm screaming, I killed Earl Milford! Startling confession, tonight at 11. <laughs> Funny, right? That's from Arrested Development. Any, any Arrested Development fans? Ugh. Millennials. Just kidding. You guys got to, if you haven't seen Arrested Development, it's hilarious. Uh, it's, it's on Netflix. It's like the funniest show of the last 10 years, for sure. Anyway, uh, so in that clip, you can see that uh, the, the, the guy's, uh, you know, this one little statement that he said has been completely removed from his context so it, that it has a complete opposite meaning of what he means, of what he's intending to say. Now, uh, that's kind of funny little situation. However, I want to say that people do this kind of thing all the time with the Bible. They take like one little verse or one little story, put it in a different context, and, and somehow it means something completely different from what it means when you read it in the original. So, uh, that's my little uh, mini rant about context. Always get the context of whatever you're studying, whatever you're looking at. And in order to understand this, this story, I think we need to have a little bit more context than we normally do for stories, all right? This isn't David and Goliath. This is Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat. all right? All right, let's get some context in. First point of context that you got to know. You got to know about King David and the promise that God gave to him. David was God's anointed king over the entire tribe of Israel, right? The whole people, all 12 tribes. Uh, God anointed David and placed him as king over him. Now, David, near the end of his life, uh, went to God and asked God to um, give him the opportunity to build a temple or a house for God. So near the end of his life, he said, get, get, let me do this. Uh, and he prayed it, and, and God's reply was, uh, no, you cannot build this house for me, but your son will. And then God gave King David a promise. And that promise was that his offspring, the line of David, like the, the sons and the grandsons and the great-grandsons that come from him, were going to reign over Israel until a king would come from his line that would rule forever. And the things that are said about this king clearly cannot be fulfilled by any mere man. It's a special and unique kind of king that's going to come from David's line. That's the first thing you got to know, the promise that God gave to King David. Second thing you got to know, you got to know about the division of the kingdom, okay? David had a son named Solomon. Solomon had a son named uh, Rehoboam or something, you know, something like that. Uh, and Rehoboam was a terrible king, and half the kingdom didn't want to be under him, and so they split in two. And you've, now you've got two kingdoms. You've got a northern kingdom, and you've got a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom uh, was ruled over by a succession of kings that um, incorporated uh, various, various forms of idol worship into the, the religion of the northern kingdom. So even though there were tons of people in that northern kingdom that were still worshiping the true God, it had gotten mixed in with all these bad kings doing bad things. The southern kingdom was ruled over by the line of David. So David's grandson, Rehoboam, his son, and so on, and so on, and so on. One line. Meanwhile, every now and then in the northern kingdom, 
some you know, general or you know, member of the royal household would decide that the current king wasn't doing a great job, would do a little coup, kill him, and then you'd get a new line there. That happened like over and over and over again. So we've got linear succession in the southern kingdom, in the northern kingdom, all sorts of crazy things are happening. Now after a while, a guy named Omri becomes king. And Omri is, this is in the northern kingdom, Omri is a, is a, a better king than, than most. Uh, and he has some children, and I, I think it's his son or his grandson is named Ahab. Okay. Next thing we gotta know, we gotta know about Jezebel and Baal. <clears throat> Jezebel was Ahab's wife. Jezebel is one of the most notorious characters in the Old Testament. And that is because through her, a new sort of idolatry was I introduced into um, the northern kingdom. Uh, through her, a kind of a, a, a type of idolatry that not only uh, existed alongside of the true worship of God, but which acti act actively tried to weed out and destroy the true worship of God from the land. So Jezebel doesn't just want to have another idol alongside uh, the other idols that were in that nation. She wanted the whole nation, northern kingdom, and she convinced Ahab to go along with this, to just eliminate God's worship and all of God's prophets and all God's people from the northern kingdom. She was very nearly successful. And she's opposed by a guy named Elijah. Ever heard of him? Uh, but, you know, we don't have time to go into all of that context. Okay, how about next? The next thing you got to know is that Jezebel had a daughter. Jezebel and Ahab had a daughter, and her name was Athaliah. And Athaliah married the king of the southern kingdom. So you know how kings, they all like to marry royal people. They all, you know, royals all marry each other. Well, you know, here's this princess in the northern kingdom. You know, they're trying to kind of bring the kingdoms closer together. So King Ahab says, you know, hey, king of the southern kingdom, why don't you marry my daughter? And he says, yes. And Athaliah marries into the southern line. Athaliah, though, is kind of like a pale imitation of her mother. She also seduces her husband into Baal worship. And the same sort of process that's happening in the northern kingdom is happening in the southern kingdom, except this time it's happening in Jerusalem where the temple of God is. And it's happening in the line of David, the promised line that is going to bring forth this king who is a Messiah who's going to rule forever. Well, then things really start happening. I made this. That's <laughs> kind of cool, right? <laughs> I, I was trying to, like, should I just explain this? And everyone's going to be, like, trying to, like, get on their heads. So I was like, I'll make a visual representation of it. So here, this is what's happening, okay? we got the line of Omri in the north and the line of David in the south. Jehoshaphat, his son Jehoram, who's married to Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel have a son. Ahab dies. Jezebel's still alive. Their son's name is Joram. Now, Joram and Jehoram are good buds, right? Together, they're kind of bringing about Baal worship, putting it everywhere through the influ influence of their mother and their wife, Jezebel and Thalia. To make things a little more confusing, Jehoram is an alternative spelling of Joram. <laughs> it's kind of like Steve and Stephen. 
So we got Steve over here and Stephen over there, basically. Uh, so sometimes the Bible will refer to Jehoram as Joram. It's, just, it's confusing. So uh, around this time, because God had just gotten sick of all the Baal worship in the northern kingdom, he raised up a guy named Jehu. Now, Jehu uh, was not like a great man or anything. He was very violent. But God used him. And what Jehu did is he kind of tricked Joram and Jehoram to come together and fight him. And then he killed them both. In one stroke, he knocks out the king of the southern kingdom and the king of the northern kingdom. And he takes the throne of the king of the, uh, of the northern kingdom. And Jehoram's son, Ahaziah, becomes king. By the way, Jehu also kills Jezebel in a quite violent fashion. So if you want to read some good violent stories, you should read about Jezebel's death. Uh, so now Ahaziah is king of the southern kingdom. Jehu is king of the northern kingdom. Athaliah, though, is kind of the real power behind the throne, like Ahaziah's mother, kind of the puppet master there. Okay. One year after that, Ahaziah dies as well. Now, Ahaziah had uh, several children, <clears throat> uh, the youngest of whom was a baby named Joash. So our story tonight that we're going to read begins just as Ahaziah has died. All right? This is some real, you know, Game of Thrones stuff we got here. <laughs> All right, let's, let's take a look at our text. 2 Kings 11, 1 through 6. 1 through 16, excuse me. And I actually, I'll, I'll read it from my phone, I guess. <clears throat> you know, I always hate it when uh, pastors, like, do their intro, and they talk for, like, 20 minutes, and they're like, and now let's pray. So you're like, that was the intro? <laughs> I thought we were almost done. Um, and on that note, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. Uh, I pray that as we, as we read it, that you would speak to us and that we could learn from this story. Um, Lord, may all of our eyes and our hearts be open to hear from you. Teach us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's read it. 2 Kings 11, 1 through 16. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. And Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, a.k.a. Jehoram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. The captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. 
Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise of the garden of the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, Bring her out between the ranks, and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. So they laid hands on her, and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house, and there she was put to death. What do you think? It's a good story, right? So what happens? By the way, Jehoiada and Jehosheba are married. Just so you know. Jehosheba, who was also related to the king in our little tangled alliance confusion, uh, is, is a member of the royal household. And when Athaliah hears that Ahaziah, her son, is dead, she realizes that there are no barriers now left between her and absolute power, except one, her grandchildren. As long as her grandchildren are alive, the true uh, line of David will continue to be considered the true kings of Judah. So what does she do? She gathers her royal offspring together. She begins to kill them. The sons of Ahaziah brought before her and murdered her own grandchildren. Athaliah was intense. When this happens, Jehosheba hears about it. And she comes in and she steals away the youngest, a baby named Joash. And for the next six years, she and Jehoiada hide this baby from Athaliah the queen. When, seven, when those six years have passed, in the seventh year, as the baby is seven years old, Jehoiada, who was a, a, a priest, possibly even the high priest in the temple, puts together this conspiracy. Now, I, I wish that I knew way more details than the biblical author tells here. I wish I knew how many people knew about this Joash. What was the conspiracy like? Were they like whispering like, did you hear that Joash is alive? How did Jehoiada win over the support of the captain of the guards? Over Athaliah? Who had a certain amount of power as well in the kingdom. I don't know all the details of what happened, but Jehoiada puts together this conspiracy. And at just the right moment, he brings Joash out. And Joash is anointed and hailed as king. And when Athaliah sees it, what's her cry? Treason! Isn't that amazing? This woman killed her grandchildren! <laughs> Treason! And she dies. That's the story. Now, I, I, before we talk about how to apply this story to our lives, the points that's made in it, a, a couple of clarifying observations. First of all, I want you to remember the promise that God had made to David. There's a reason why I talked about it at the beginning. Remember that God himself 
had promised that from the line of David would come a king that was going to reign forever. God said that. And now Athaliah is systematically destroying the line of David until all that's left is one infant, helpless. Imagine the thread that this promise is hanging on. Do you know who the fulfillment of this promise is? Who that that king is going to be? It's Jesus Christ himself. Promised. The son of David. And now there's one son left. And all the powers of a hostile queen are coming down to kill him. It is an incredibly profound threat to the word of God. If that baby dies, then God is a liar. Second observation. I want you to remember the, the dryness of these narratives in the Bible sometimes can obscure what incredible things happen in them. But remember that Athalia is the queen that she commands the power and that she has decreed that the children should die. And remember that for six years she reigns in Jerusalem. That every day that child is at risk of being found and discovered. The actions of Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada are courageous. The third observation that I want to make is that uh, Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat were patient and they planned. There's a conspiracy. Right? Jehoshaphat doesn't just grab Joash and say, this is the real king. They hide him for six years. They wait. When the time's right, they bring him forth. Remember those things. This promise that God has made contained in the person of Joash. Remember the courage that it took for them to rescue him and to wait for six years to bring him out. And the planning and the foresight and the wisdom that was involved in the whole process. Those are my observations. What are the main points to get from this story? Point number one, the promises of God are never going to fail. If there was ever a precarious time for the promises of God, it was here. But they did not fail. Now, let's say Jehoshaphat decides to join with Athaliah instead. She's not going to intervene and steal Joash away. I, I guarantee if that had been the case, something else would have happened. <laughs> Maybe like the guy that was going down with a sword to kill Joash would have suddenly been struck by a heart attack just as he's about to come down. But that baby is not going to die. God's not going to be a liar. Something's going to happen. It just happened, so happens, that God ordained that it should be Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada 
that would be the ones that would rescue that kid. But God's promises, what he has said, is going to come to pass. Nothing will be able to stop it. Point number two. God is inviting us to join him in bringing about his promises. God has promised to bring forth the king who will reign forever from the line of David. The way that he did that involved thousands of people over hundreds of years. Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada were integral parts in bringing about the promise of God. The way God accomplishes his purposes is through people that he calls and sends. Point number three. This requires great courage. Just because God said that he is going to do something, just because he's called you to participate in him doing that, does not mean that great courage is not required of you. Do you think it took courage for Jehoshaphat to do what she did? Even though she knew, even though she knew that God's word was not going to fail, Jehoiada was a priest of God Almighty. He knew God's word was not going to fail. Do you think it still took him courage to do what he did? Point number four. This requires the use of our gifts in our brains. God is calling us to participate in bringing about his promises. This requires great courage, but it also requires our gifts. What do you have that you have not received from God? Why do you think he gave it to you? So that you may serve him in bringing about his ends in his earth until you die or Christ returns. Jehoiada needed every gift that he had to organize that conspiracy, to execute it, and to act. Point number five, the fruit of this is great joy and great reward. Is there a privilege that you can imagine that is greater than participating with God in accomplishing his purposes? Jehoiada, for all time, Jehoshaphat, for all time, have played a vital role in bringing about God's promises. Their names live forever because of this. Not as well known as they should be. But hopefully tonight, a little bit more well known. <laughs> there is great reward and great joy. Indeed, I don't think there is a greater joy than this. Certainly there's no greater reward. Think back, if you will, for a moment to my friend Peter. Peter. 
Peter did not have to do what he did. I imagine if Peter had not done what he did, God would have brought somebody else into my life. Assuming, you know, that God wanted me. It seems like he did. He did want me. But Peter doesn't do what he does. God's going to bring somebody else because for some reason God wanted to save me. I certainly didn't deserve it. But he did want that. So if Peter does not do what he does, somebody else is going to come along. And yet for all my life, and for all of eternity, Peter will have played a role in my eternal salvation. When I get to heaven, I'm going to see Peter there. And I'm going to say, Peter, do you know that I'm here? Because you got up off of your bed, you walked out of your dorm room, and you invited me to read the Bible with you. That's why I'm here. God used you to do that. What reward there is in that. What joy. It could have been someone else. But it got to be Peter. All right, let's apply it. Question, what, what are the promises of God that he is inviting you into? Now, every, everything that God says to you in the Bible has a, a, the, like the character of a promise, right? If God says something about the future, then it's a promise. Because God's word has never failed. He doesn't have to say, I promise you this. He just has to, he just has to say it. And it's a promise. Now, every now and then, if there's something really, really important, he'll also say, I promise, in it. It's like doubly strengthened word. Even more secure than infinitely secure. I don't even. (laughs) What has God promised you? First of all, he has promised that if you come to him in repentance, seeking forgiveness for your sins, then in Christ and in his resurrection, you will have it. That nothing can remove it. Nothing can stand in the way of you receiving it. He promises you that there is no sin, no temptation, no issue in your life more powerful than his power. That anyone who here tonight feels under the control of some sin, some power that is external to yourself, God has promised freedom, liberation, in the Holy Spirit. Those are two I can think of. A third promise. Jesus says that he will not return until the gospel has been preached in every nation on earth. And he also says that he will return. And therefore, since he has not yet returned, we can assume that the gospel has not yet been preached to the ends of the earth. So, God has promised that Christ will return. 
In order to bring that about, the gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth. God is inviting us by the Great Commission to go make disciples of all nations. And when that is done, he will return. These are the promises God is inviting you to participate in. Salvation, sanctification, and mission. Until the whole world hears. So how do we apply Jehoiada's story to these promises? It's like a four-part process I think I got here. Yeah, four-part process. Number one. Lay hold of the promises of God. What has God promised you? Assume that it will happen. Because God has said that it will. That is what I mean by lay hold of the promises of God. God has said the gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth before he returns. Let's lay hold of that. Number two. Pray for him to bring them about. Now, this is one of those theological points that I don't quite understand. If God has promised to do something, then why do I got to pray to bring it about? I would hesitate to commend that to you Except that I believe that everywhere in the scriptures you see men praying and seeking for God to bring about things that he has promised to do. One of my favorite passages is in the book of Daniel. When Daniel reads the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, isn't that great? You got guys in the Bible reading the Bible. He reads the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah and he realizes that God has promised to return his people from exile after a certain amount of time and that that amount of time is up. It's time for God to fulfill his promise. And what does he do? He says, well, no. He fasts. He puts on sackcloth sackcloth and ashes. And then he falls on his face before the Lord and begs him, pleads with him to have mercy on the people and return them to Jerusalem where the house of God is. What has God promised to do? Plead with him to do it. Because it's his promises that give our prayers confidence. Third, think about what actions you can take. Now this this is a very complicated point here. Remember what Jehoiada does. There's this promise that Joash and his line are going to be kings, right? But he doesn't just like say, oh, here's the baby. I'm going to leave it on the throne. Good luck, Joash. (laughs) Uses his brain. Uses his gifts. These promises of God, they need your brain. They need your gifts. Every one of them. The whole church of God, with all their powers, all that God has equipped us with, it's all working together. It is all given so that the gospel might be taken to the ends of the earth. 
God wants you and everything that you have for this. And finally, at the right time, in the right way, take courage and act. How we can sit here and do these like motivational talks. Do it. <laughs> we could sit on those every day. We could listen to them. And yet in the moment, it will still require courage. You will still be afraid. Who is it that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life? No matter how convicted and convinced you are of it, it will require courage of you. Think of Peter sitting on his bed, screwing up his courage, and then walking down his hallway and acting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada. Lord, thank you for using them. And Lord, thank you for everyone here that has heard the call to come to Christ for forgiveness. Lord, we know that each one of us here can point to the people or person that you used in our lives to bring that about, whether parents or friends. Lord, we too want to participate in what you are doing, your promises, the reasons for which you appointed this world that we may know the joy that it is in walking with you, participating in what you have ordained. Let it be so, Lord. Let it be so. In your name we pray. Amen.